Hebrews 9, if you'd like to use the Bible provided for you, page 1005 of that Bible, Jesus is better. What a great theme for a series of messages, don't you think? What an incredible song, and uh, I told Doug I only could have been better if we had it eight chapters earlier, but we have a lot of chapters to go as we're making this journey through this incredible letter in God's Word that Jesus is better. And now this morning we're reading together, beginning in Hebrews chapter 9, you follow beginning at verse 1 down through verse 14. So we read this passage today. Now even the first covenant had regulation for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail now. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How powerful is the word of God, right? Those are living words. Do they not live in your heart this morning? Did not your spirit by the Holy Spirit respond to these living words of our living God. Now, 
This passage was about symbols. You'll see it's all about symbols. And symbols are important. Symbols are important for a nation. And perhaps on this holiday weekend, there's no more time in our nation's annual calendar that we recognize very, very significant symbols as on Memorial Day. Tomorrow, across this country, will be filled with symbols. There will be the playing of taps, as we've already heard this morning. There will be 21-gun salutes all across this nation. There will be hundreds of thousands of flags decorating graves, many of those, the final resting place of people who have served and many who sacrificed all for our country. Tomorrow, wreaths will be laid once again at the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. These are all symbols, very important symbols for our country. But let's remember the symbols are treasured not because of the symbols themselves, but because of what the symbols represent. They represent a treasured reality. A treasured reality. As a nation, on Memorial Day, we have all these symbols because we are reflecting on a treasured reality. The treasured reality of service and suffering, sacrifice, realities that are treasured by us in America because of what that service, sacrifice, and suffering has kept safe for us, the liberty that we enjoy. Now, our text that we've read this morning you could no doubt see, is a text that's filled with symbols. And all of these symbols are symbols of the Old Covenant, what we might call the Old Testament. And they were a true treasure. They were treasured by the people of Israel for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They were treasured. But the reason that they are treasured, even as we read about them today, is because they were symbols not of an old covenant that has vanished away. They're symbols of the new covenant, the covenant that lasts forever. In fact, they are symbols of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the king priest who has brought for us this new covenant, the covenant of eternal salvation in which we as sinners can enter in to life with God now and forevermore. And so really today is Memorial Day. It's a new Memorial Day though. Not a new Memorial Day for our nation, but it should be a renewed Memorial Day for us in many ways because of this new covenant which all of us 
who are followers of Jesus know and experience. Now, I want us to look at this passage and notice again, if you would, there were many symbols here and they are symbols of the old covenant. Verse one talks about this old covenant and its practices. The writer says, now, even the first covenant, that's the old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, notice that earthly place of holiness has to do with the sanctuary in the old covenant. That was at first a tent. We call it a tabernacle sometimes and then became a temple. It was a place of earthly, earthly place of holiness. But now notice he says in this place, this sanctuary, there were regulations of worship. So specific. As a matter of fact, did you recognize that there are 50 chapters given in the law of Moses, 50 chapters just to the worship in the tabernacle and the service of the priest, 50 chapters. God only took two chapters to describe the entire creation of the heavens and the earth, but he took 50 chapters to make it very clear to the people of Israel how they were to worship him. Now, why did God do this? Why? Because God wanted them to know that they were approaching a holy God, that he was absolutely pure and holy, and they were condemned sinners. And how they approached a holy God as condemned sinners was very, very important. And how they could have access to this God and know him was very important. And so all of it was filled with various regulations. So specific and so filled with symbols. All that God established with the people of Israel about how he was to be worshipped were symbolic of greater truth. Greater truth in the new covenant. Now, the author here is speaking, remember, he's speaking primarily, first of all, to Jewish people who have become believers in Jesus as their Messiah. They have professed faith in him. But because of persecution, because of so much difficulty, they are being tempted to turn back, to turn back to the old practices, the old way, the old covenant. And so the writer is writing to tell them that Jesus is better not to turn back and so to remind them how much better Jesus is than the old. He walks them through the symbols of the old worship patterns. And he begins with the symbols, the symbols in the sanctuary itself. Now what I want us to do just for a few minutes, and maybe this will help us, I want us just to imagine that we are back 1,400 years before Christ and we are taking a tour of the tabernacle, a tour of the tent that God erected to meet with his people. I want us to take this tour. Now, as we approach the tabernacle we can see that it's surrounded by a large courtyard. And this courtyard is screened off 
with screens all the way around it made of blazing white fabric, seven and a half feet high, higher than a man's head, higher than anyone could look over. And the fabric is blazing in the Judean desert sun. Now walk around with it. It's blazing white. It is 150 feet long. It is 40, uh, 75 feet wide. And there is only one entrance. The entrance is on the east side behind one of the panels. But you'll notice something interesting about the entrance. Though there's only one entrance to it, it's very wide. 37 and a half feet wide. Entire one half of the eastern side of the tabernacle is a gate. Meaning there's only one way in, but it's wide enough for anyone who wants to come. And anyone can walk inside of that gate. Not just priests, not just the Levites and the rabbis, but anyone can walk inside. As soon as you come inside the gate, though, immediately is the first object in front of you. The first object in front of you is a brass, bronze place of sacrifice, an altar. Seven and a half feet on each side, four feet above the ground. There is where anyone coming into the tabernacle must first go there. And there they can offer their sacrifice. It can be a bull, or it can be a goat, or it can be a lamb. Or for the poor people, it can even be a pigeon. Or for people who can't even afford that, it can be just some of their grain. No one, rich or poor, is held away. Anybody can come, but they must come by way of the place of sacrifice. And there the priest will take the objects. And the priest will offer the sacrifice. And people can kneel. They can put their faces to the ground. They can raise their hands in worship. They can offer prayers. But they must do it right there at the place of the bronze altar. Now beyond the bronze altar, only the Levites, the descendants of the tribe of Levi can go. And then only past that can come those who are allowed to go into the tent itself, they are the descendants of Abraham, of Aaron rather, the priests, the descendants of Moses' brother. But before they can go into the tent, they must wash themselves, wash their hands, wash their feet. And for that purpose, there's a giant brass basin that is right behind this altar in front of the tent itself and there is the tent it's amazing how small it is when you consider whose house on earth it is this is called the tent of meeting because it's where God will meet with his people Israel it's only 45 feet in length, 15 feet wide, 15 feet 
high, covered all over by very drab skins of animals. It's not a pretty sight at all. Very drab, all the skins faded by the burning sun. Small, only 675 square feet in the entire tent. And only the priest can go in, but let's go in. We step in, and immediately we see there's two sections. The first two-thirds are called the holy place. As you step in the entrance, everything changes. All around you is no more drab, no more blazing whiteness, but everything is purple and scarlet and beautiful gold. Immediately to your left, there's a large lampstand with seven branches and special oil lighted. And it's the only light in that tent shimmering in the darkness, the light of the seven lamps. That's on your left. If you look to your right, there's a small table a table that's about two feet high, two and a half feet wide, three and a half feet in length. And on top of this golden covered table, there are 12 loaves of bread. It's called the table of the presence. And the bread is called the bread of the presence. One loaf for each of the 12 tribes. It's put on that table... Fresh every week. Twelve loaves are put fresh every week. When the twelve loaves from the previous week are taken, they must not leave the tent. But the priests gather around and they, they eat the entire bread. All the twelve small loaves that are on that table. And then in front of you, is a small brass altar. One and a half feet square on the top. It's about three feet high. It has coals burning on the top grate. And only a special incense for that purpose only is throughout the day burned on that altar. So that constantly in that shimmering place from the lampstands, there is this fragrant smoke that is rising up in the tent, going out into the courtyard. The people can smell this incense as it's offered. And behind that little altar, there is a huge curtain stretching across the room. It's a tapestry, really. It's made of incredibly beautiful scarlet and purple material. And woven into it are these brilliant angelic images that are shimmering in the light of the lampstand. It's the holy place. And then behind that curtain, you enter into what is known as the holy of the holy. One-third of that small tent. It's a cube. When you step in, it's 15 feet wide. 
15 feet deep, 15 feet high. No light in there except what little light comes from the lampstand over the curtain. Filled with the aroma of the burning incense outside of the curtain. You step in and there you see it. In front of you is the Ark of the Covenant. It is a gold-covered box about three and a half feet wide, long, two and a half feet wide, two feet deep. There are poles, gold-covered, that are connected to the rings that go on each side of it. And inside of this golden box, there are three objects. Inside of the box, there is a golden urn that's holding some of the manna, the bread from heaven that God brought every morning for 40 years and fed his people in the wilderness. One urn of it was gathered up and put in the ark. Also in there is Aaron's rod, his walking cane, or his sign of authority. It had miraculously budded because there had been a rebellion against his authority. And in a test that Jehovah God gave, only Aaron's rod budded. And so that was placed inside of the ark, a reminder that only Aaron's descendants would be the priests. And then... Finally, at the bottom of that box were two tablets of stone. The ten laws of the covenant, the ten commandments as we call them, that had been carved by God himself, given to Moses, and they were placed inside. And on top of the box, the ark, was a lid the lid was one piece of solid gold that covered the entire box. And formed out of that lid were two angelic beings that stretched their wings forward and touched their wings together over the top of the box. And their faces were looking downward, downward. It was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, because there, above that ark, above that lid, and between the wings of the angelic beings, there dwelt the presence of God with his people. Every detail was determined by God. Significant and symbolic. And so also was not just the sanctuary, but the way the service would be carried out. The service in this sanctuary. Hundreds and hundreds of priests carried out every detail of the worship that went in to the sacrificial system. Day in and day out. But... There was only one priest, only one, who could go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the high priest, and he could only go one day 
each year. Verse 7, notice in, your, in the text we read, describes this. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now this is describing the rituals of that one day. That one day is called the Day of Atonement. We often refer to it as Yom Kippur. The day, Yom, day of Kippur, the covering. The day of covering. Here's what would happen on that day. The high priest would stand next to the altar out in the courtyard. A bullock would be brought in. And the bull would be sacrificed. Some of the blood would be captured by the high priest. He would carry that basin of blood back into the holy place, back behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle with a hyssop branch some of the blood in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This was a sacrifice for his sins and on his garments that he wore. And on that day, he wore special garments, not the colorful garments he wore all year long. On this day, he's dressed in pure white from top to bottom. And at the bottom of the hem of his garments, there are little bells that are ringing ringing as he moves through the tabernacle. And we're told by the rabbis that he actually had a golden cord that was tied around his waist and that went back out into the courtyard. Because if he went in there with an unrighteous attitude, if he went in there with a wrong spirit into the presence of God, he would be destroyed. And then who's going after him? <laughs> His body would be dragged out if that were the case. Then he came back out a second time. And when he comes to the courtyard now, there's two rams that are here by the altar. Lots are cast. One of the rams is designated by the, the lot as Azazel, which means for separation. And the priest puts his his hands upon the head of the goat. And he prays over this goat, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And then that goat, with a tether, is led back out of the tabernacle, out of the courtyard, led through the congregation, and out into the wilderness, and then is released. The sins of the people of Israel for another year going into the wilderness carried away. And then the priest would come to the other goat, sacrifice this goat, capture some of the blood. Back into the tent he would go, back behind the curtain, and this time... He would dip the hyssop branch into the blood and he would sprinkle it on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the golden lid. 
and between the presence of God and the laws of God, which his people had broken that year, the blood of the sacrifice would be applied. Now, this was the ritual. Year in, year out, year in, year out. Why? Because these symbols, for all of their sacred nature, all these symbols are insufficient. They were not enough. They could not accomplish the ultimate that was needed. And that was intended by God. All of this ritual was intended by God to send a message. What's the message? Verse 8. Here's the message. By this, all this ritual, year in and year out, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, that is, into the presence of God, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Access to God had not yet been perfectly accomplished. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned against God? God was merciful to them. He did not destroy them, but he sent them out of his presence and they could not return to be with him as they had before. And now this system of ritual is showing that, yes, you can know this God and you can worship this God, but not yet, not yet has the fulfillment come. This is all repetition and it's all symbolic given by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says the Holy Spirit gave this as symbolism for the present age. According to this arrangement, this practice of the ritual, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The ritual itself is God-ordained. God ordained the ritual. And it was performed in love. Many people performed it in love. Righteous people performed it in love. But there was no ultimate relief. There was no absolute peace. There was no understanding of total acceptance because it had to be repeated again and again and again. You see, symbols are insufficient. And that's what verse 10, the writer says, these symbols deal only with food. He's talking about the symbols of the old covenant. They only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body that have been imposed by God until, until the time of the Reformation should come. The time literally of the reformation. There's a time coming. God's saying, I'm going to straighten everything out. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fulfill all this. All of this is temporary. This ritual is temporary. Preparing your heart for the reality to come. And the reality, my friends, thank God, has come. Amen. The reality has come. It's the new reality in Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. Jesus Christ appeared. 
in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive what? The adoption as sons. The fullness of time came, and Jesus appeared. And with him came the realities, the realities of a new covenant. A new covenant was made. This new covenant was made on the cross by a sacrifice where a priest named Jesus, who was a king, did not just offer a sacrifice. He himself crawled up on the burnt offering of the cross of Calvary and stretched himself out as a sacrifice. The ultimate reality. Jesus did that for us. Note the realities of this new covenant. How beautiful Christ appeared. He appeared as a high priest, the king priest. My friend, he appeared as the perfect high priest. Jesus is better. You see, the symbols were finished. Who needs the symbols when the reality has come? And Jesus is better than any symbol. Who needs the ritual? Who needs all the formality when the reality of Jesus Christ has come? Notice the high priest. He has brought things that have come. Maybe your Bible might say, to come or will come, but that's not an accurate translation. He's not the high priest of the things that are good that will come someday. They have already come in Jesus Christ. The gospel is it is finished. And the good news is that the high priest has come. The sacrifice has been made and he has appeared with new realities what are these new realities? It's the reality of an eternal sanctuary. Notice verse 11. He entered into a greater and more perfect tent. What does that mean? It means when our high priest Jesus lifted off from earth, from the Mount of Olives, he ascended through the clouds, welcomed by the angels, into the heavenlies he returned from where he came, into the temple not made with hands, into the house of his father God he went and sat down on his throne. That is the eternal sanctuary, friends. That's where he went. My God has an eternal sanctuary, and it's not the sanctuary in Jerusalem. It's the sanctuary in the new Jerusalem. In the house of our God. Now that eternal sanctuary is there. <laughs> the old sanctuaries have passed. That tent faded and was worn out. And it was replaced by Solomon in 950 B.C. An incredible structure of the temple. 370 years it stood. But then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. All the treasures of that temple lost. The exiles came back. Several million went in as prisoners. 57,000 came back. And they built a temple. They tried to build a temple as best they could. And God said he would bless that temple. But they lived there in constant warfare with nations invading. Back and forth invading. 
until finally the Romans invaded Jerusalem in 63 B.C. And an old general by the name of Pompey captured Jerusalem. And he forced his way onto the Temple Mount. And he forced his way into the temple. And even though the priest got in his way, he grabbed him and threw him out of the way. And he walked in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And guess what the general found there? Nothing. It was empty. No Ark of the Covenant. It had been lost hundreds of years before. It was just empty. No presence of God. Nothing happened to him. And he walked back out and he said, it's empty. Well, a few years later, a man wanted to make himself popular to the Jewish people. He wasn't a Jew, but he had been made king of the Jews by Augustus. His name was Herod. And so he decided to build a temple. And for the next 83 years, that temple was being built. Started in 20 B.C., one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was still being built when the writer of Hebrews was writing these pages. And it was finally finished in 63 A.D. And it stood for seven years. Then the Romans destroyed it. Set it on fire. The gold came down into the blocks of the temple. And the Roman soldiers wanting to get to the gold. They took crowbars and pried down all of the stones of the temple. As Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. And for 1948 years, there has been no temple in Jerusalem. No tabernacle for the people of Israel. But friends, listen. There is a temple. There may not be a temple in Jerusalem today. And if there were a temple in Jerusalem, it would just be a shadow and a copy because the real temple is in heaven, right? Where our high priest and king, the Lord Jesus, is the eternal sanctuary. And on this very month of May, 1985 years ago, our Savior ascended into that temple. And he's still there today. One day he's coming back, right? He's coming back. He's the king priest, Jesus. He's not a shadow. He's not a symbol. He's alive. The living king. He's the eternal savior. Look what he has brought with him. Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place. He doesn't have to go year after year. And he didn't go by means of the blood of goats and calves. No, he went by means of his own blood. That means he took himself there. His own body, glorified from his resurrection, he brought into the temple as the eternal living king-priest sacrifice. For God's people. He's there today. And listen to this. If the blood of goats and bulls. Verse 13. The sprinkling on defiled persons. With ashes of a sacrificial heifer. If they purified the flesh. 
Listen to this. How much more? That's one of the favorite statements of this author. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, will the blood of Christ, who with the help of the eternal spirit offered himself as the sacrificial lamb without spot to God. Friends, listen. The reason you can have hope is not first and foremost, listen carefully, that Jesus offered himself for you. The first person that Jesus offered himself for was a God angry against sin. And he offered himself as the lamb to the judge of the universe that the justice of a holy God might come on him. He died for God. And he died for us. He's the sacrifice and he's the substitute. Do you see, my friend? If you think that Jesus only died for you, that might not be enough to soothe your conscience. But when you know that Jesus died for God and satisfied God, then that's good enough for me and you, right? If Jesus' death satisfies God, then it satisfies my needs as well. And what does that mean? A pure conscience. I don't have to try to earn my salvation with dead works anymore. But now I'm free. You're free if you're looking to Jesus to serve the living God. Not with fear, but with freedom. Because He, the Lord Jesus, has made the perfect sacrifice. And he lives in heaven for you. And there's no need for any other ritual to be done because the king himself, Jesus, has accomplished salvation. Oh, what a Jesus we serve. What a Lord he is. Amen? What an accomplishment. And in this new covenant... He's only left us with one symbol. Did you know that? For all the church of all the centuries, only one symbol of the new covenant for all of us. Individually, baptism. Symbolizing the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection and our identity with Him. But for all of us as His people, only one symbol the symbol that is to remind us of a perfect savior a perfect priest a perfect sacrifice a perfect salvation a new covenant not by the passover the last passover has happened because the passover lamb jesus has been sacrificed not the last passover what the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, where we gather and take the bread and take the juice, the fruit of the vine, and as Jesus said, remember me until I come. There's another supper coming, do you know that? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Wow, what a reception that's going to be, right? But until then, the Lord's Supper, a new Memorial Day.